Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's get to it. Daniel chapter 7 is where we are this morning as we are working our way through this Old Testament prophet. And if you're visiting with us for the first time today, you've picked a doozy of a Sunday to show up because welcome to one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible to understand and interpret. All right, as you're finding Daniel chapter 7, if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones in the rack in front of you. Feel free to to use that Bible. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that Bible as our gift to you. Keep it, read it, come back. be part of a Bible-believing church, whether it's this one or another. But you can find, if you're not used to, especially Old Testament books are sometimes harder to find. You can find Daniel chapter 7 on page either 581 or 744 of the, the Bible that is in front of you there. Same version, just different copies of the same, same Bible. As you're finding that, let me just mention, uh, do pray for our Uganda team. As Robert mentioned, they've had a, a quite a difficult weekend of travel. Um, some missed flights, not their fault, just... You know, airports are messy sometimes. Um, I think some bags are lagging behind. And I'll be leaving tomorrow evening and doing a pastor's conference with 50 pastors there joining the team. Shortly, right after service today, I love to hang around and talk to you, but got, um, my schedule's a little tight. I'm actually driving to Atlanta this afternoon to do a wedding of Bob and Karen Rosa's son, Jamie. And then uh, Jennifer and I will stay in Atlanta tonight, and then she'll drop me off at the airport tomorrow. Robert Ward will be preaching next Sunday, a standalone message. We won't be in, I won't leave him with Daniel chapter 8, another vision of rams and goats. I don't think I'll do that to him. So he'll preach a standalone message next Sunday, and then we'll pick back up in Daniel chapter 8. And Lord willing, we'll finish Daniel by the end of July. And then we're going to get into 1 Timothy, which is going to be really a more familiar genre of scripture, to say, to say the least. Um, well, in just a moment, uh, my plan is to read through Daniel 7 and to just do our best to explain this very complex and difficult chapter. Um, before I do that, I'm going to pray and just ask the Lord to help us. And then I want to give you a, a kind of map as to where we're going to go and then give you some tools, even before we begin to read, give you some tools to think about how to read portions of Scripture like this. But before we even attempt to do any of that, let's just pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. We know that the nations rage, even now as we're speaking. Psalm 2 says that the nations rage, but it also tells us that you sit in heaven and you laugh at the arrogance of nations. You are in complete and utter and exhaustive control. As Moses says in Psalm 90, you are everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So Lord, calm our hearts as we live in turbulent times. Lift our eyes and our gaze towards your sovereign providential control over all things. And set our hearts ablaze as we think about the pinnacle of your work, the redemption of your people by the work of your Son on the cross, and by your Holy Spirit, which is now here filling your people, blowing like a mighty rushing wind to do your work, to, as Reynolds read for us, regenerate and renew dead hearts. Or do that, I pray. As we gather, we know that there are believers in this room. Encourage us. Give us conviction and fortitude. And I know there are unbelievers present. Lord, do what only you can do. Give them life. The very thing that you require of them that they can't produce. Give them faith. Give them the gift of repentance. And Lord, I especially feel frail and weak today to unpack this difficult text. So Lord, help me. Remove me from the equation, I pray, and use me despite myself to bless these people that I dearly love. And Lord, may we leave this room encouraged, convicted, with steel in our spine, because you triumph. 
and we are your people. I pray this, Lord. And even before I end my prayer, Lord, I think about other sister congregations that are doing the very same thing that we're doing in our city. I think about Edgewood Baptist, and I pray for Pastor Andy Merritt and Morningside Baptist, Pastor Thad Smith. Encourage those congregations. Put fire in those pulpits. Lord, thank you for churches in our city, in our state, in our country, and all around the world that are gathering today to lift high the name of Jesus. May we do the same for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me give you very quickly four principles for reading prophetic or apocalyptic literature. So most of us are probably familiar with the word prophecy, which in the Bible means sort of either bringing God's word to bear on the moment or predicting God's unfolding plan of redemption in the future. That's what the word prophecy means. Usually when we think of it, we think of it kind of in terms of telling God, speaking to one of his prophets, and that prophet sort of unfolding the future. And that's, that's certainly what I think is happening here. So uh, this, this literature that we're reading is prophetic literature, sometimes also called apocalyptic literature. Now, the word apocalypsis is just a word that literally means revelation. When you think of apocalypse, you might think of like that Vietnam War movie with Robert Duvall, you know, getting off the helicopter, apocalypse now or whatever. Well, the word apocalypsis or apocalyptic literally means revelation or God displaying something, telling something to a prophet so that he would tell his people and that they would be encouraged. So let me give you four principles for how to read this very difficult and challenging genre of scripture that we find at points in the Old Testament, specifically in Daniel 7 through 12, in Revelation at the end of the Bible and portions of the Old Testament like Isaiah. So one... One principle is, is I want you to realize that it is meant to comfort and not confuse. Now, there are some very difficult things to understand. Great minds in the history of the church have debated back and forth on the details of what some of these things mean in this chapter. The point is not to confuse his people, but God gives these visions to his people to be communicated to them through the centuries to give comfort. Okay, so that's the first thing I want you to know. And the way that I think God wants us to approach this so as to not confuse us, but to comfort us, is to realize that the goal in prophetic apocalyptic literature is more to make a grand impression rather than to establish specific details. And I think this is where particularly the American church, unlike the history of the rest of the Christian church through the ages, there's just something about Americans. We like, you know, we're just the industrialized society. We like details. We like instruction manuals. We like complicated things because we're a very advanced society. And we have brought a lot of that bent to the Bible. And it hinders us sometimes from understanding the big picture that God wants us to see in the Bible. And so sometimes we look for a kind of um, imagery or direct correlation to everything that's happening in a biblical vision and picture. And oftentimes, I'm not saying that there aren't correlations and things that mean this and that, but oftentimes that's not really the point. One, uh, one commentator put it this way, that if I were to show you a picture of a elephant in a tug-of-war with a donkey and a rope, you would instantly sort of know, if that was a, maybe a political cartoon, that that would be like you know, an election year where the Republican and Democratic Party are sort of in a tug-of-war for the presidential election. And that's really the point of a political cartoon like that. We're not supposed to look at the rope and say, well, that's just three strands in the rope. I wonder what the three strands mean. You know, we can just meant to make an impression. Well, in a similar fashion, biblical prophecy often functions like that. It's not to say that there aren't things to think about and specific applications. We'll make some of those, but it's meant to make a grand impression. So be a little leery. I want you to be a little leery of people that are very dogmatic about trying to take every little nook and cranny of prophetic literature and trying to apply it to a present-day situation with graphs and charts, right? We need to be careful about being overly dogmatic about this type of genre of Scripture. Now, you guys know I can be dogmatic, right? 
there are portions of Scripture that we should be dogmatic about. Like the doctrine of Scripture. It's God's holy word. It's inspired. We should be dogmatic about that. We should be dogmatic about the exclusivity of the work of Christ as the only way back to our creator God. We should be dogmatic about that. We should be dogmatic about the power of the cross and the beauty of redemption and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and a whole host of other things. But there are portions of scripture and theological topics where we should be a little bit more cautious about being overly specific. Thirdly, and this is really important, is that we should realize that in prophetic literature, there are often multiple horizons of fulfillment. And by that I mean, think about looking at a mountain chain from 100 miles away. And you may see two mountain peaks And from your vantage point, very far away, those two peaks from a great distance may seem very close together. So there's two things that you see from a distance that are very close together. But as you get closer to that mountain range, you will realize that there might be a great distance between those two mountains that from a great distance away seem to be very close. And oftentimes in prophetic apocalyptic literature, as we read it, events that happen thousands of years apart will be really put right together in the Bible and it becomes kind of difficult to think about the timing and so we should be cautious about being so dogmatic about timing. And in that vein of multiple horizons of fulfillment, realize that very often in prophetic literature, the writer, the present day writer, in this case Daniel, is receiving a vision from God that has application for his present day listeners, hearers of what he's saying to them. So there's a kind of literal fulfillment in the present day that becomes a kind of picture or type for a future fulfillment, maybe you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years in the future. And so there's, there's like horizons of fulfillment in, in prophetic literature. And then fourthly, really as a lens to looking at the whole Bible, is that the work of Christ is ultimately the focus. The Bible is not about demons and dragons and beasts rising out of the sea, but it's ultimately about the work of Christ. Okay, with that as a sort of four principles for thinking about this chapter, let me just give you the outline, and we're just going to work our way through it. So I think just even coming up with points and stuff would almost not serve us well. So we're just going to give it to you up at the front. Here's the outline. We're going to look at the four beasts in verses 1 through 8. We're going to look at the heavenly court in verses 9 through 14 and the interpretation of this vision in verses 15 through 28. That really doesn't help you understand the chapter much at all, but I know some of you get nervous when you don't have an outline, and so do I. So I'm giving it to you right up front. Okay, let's go. Verse 1. So Daniel, chapters 1 through 6, were historical narrative explaining Daniel's life. Chapters 7 through 12 now change, and these are visions that Daniel has during his life that we read about in, verses, in, ch- in chapters 1 through 6. We're actually going back in time now. And this is a vision that Daniel has of four beasts. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, remember we read about him in Daniel chapter 5. He's the young punk king who threw the party. And then God showed up, wrote on the wall, and he got killed at the end of the chapter. It didn't go well for him. At the beginning of his reign, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And in biblical literature, oftentimes the sea is depicted as a place of great chaos and uncertainty, like the the, the chaos of a fallen world, and that's certainly the case here. Verse 3, And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked at its its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold... Another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, 
This is the third beast now. Like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. All right, let's pause. Let's take a breath here, and let's just kind of summarize what's going on. Daniel has this vision of... You know, usually when I tell you guys, when I pause, you guys look up and you're right with me. But I, I could tell you guys needed to shake it out after that. You're like, whoa, man. All right, okay. So an incredible vision Daniel has here of these four beasts coming up out of the sea. The first is a lion with eagle's wings. The second is a bear. The third is a leopard with four wings. And then the fourth is not really like an animal in any way. It really goes beyond description. It's just this terrifying beast. So Daniel has this picture of these four beasts. Now, in in the history of biblical interpretation, just about everybody agrees that these four beasts correspond to the four four types of uh, stone in the vision of Daniel chapter 2. Remember when Daniel had that vision of a statue-like figure, and there was gold and iron and bronze, and, and I can't remember the fourth, uh, 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 iron, clay, uh, the uh, legs, that those four types of materials corresponded to four kingdoms. And in Daniel chapter 7 here, virtually everybody in the history of the church has interpreted these four beasts to be four successive kingdoms that were literal, physical kingdoms. So the lion, the first beast, represents Babylon, the present, uh, the present kingdom that had captured God's people. Nebuchadnezzar had carried them away. And then after the Babylonians, then this bear beast is raised up, and that's representative of the Medo-Persian kingdom. The Medo-Persians come and conquer the Babylonians. And then after the Medo-Persians come, you have this leopard-like beast, which is people have interpreted to mean Greece. And then after Greece, the, the great Greek empire rose up. Then after that came this fourth terrible, terrifying, indescribable beast, which virtually all commentators have identified as Rome, the Roman Empire. And so you have these four literal fulfillments, this near-term fulfillment of this vision here, these four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But really, through the ages, you have various kingdoms that raise up against God and His people that take on some of the characteristics of these beasts. And even even though the Babylonian Empire is gone, long gone, You have in the New Testament, you have the Apostle John at the end of the Bible actually referring to the Roman Empire and calling it a kind of modern-day Babylon. In fact, he calls Rome Babylon. And so there's there's this literal fulfillment of these kingdoms that rise that are personified in these beasts. But then there is this spiritual aspect and fulfillment to all of these kingdoms. So here's what I want you to see at this point. I don't want you to get so wrapped around the axle of trying to figure out what the, you know, the three bones in the bear's mouth mean, or why does the lion have eagle's wings, or why does the leopard have four wings on its back and four heads. Just know that these terrifying beasts represent successive kingdoms of man that really wreak havoc on God's people. And then the scene shifts from the four beasts to the heavenly court in verse 9. So let's pick back up in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, this incredible phrase to describe God the Father. I think the only place in the Scripture where, this is the first place in the Scripture where God is described in this way. And the Ancient of Days, meaning God the Father, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames its wheels were burning fire 
a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Now, what's notable about verses 9 and 10 is this is one of the most descriptive descriptions. How's that for good English? This is one of the most <laughs> descriptive descriptions in the Bible of God the Father. Usually, especially the Hebrew writers, when they're talking about God, they stay away from trying to describe him. But in this instance, Daniel, in this vision, sees a very specific vision of God. And I don't think it's meant to give us necessarily a literal picture of what God the Father looks like. It's meant to show us how much greater God is compared to these four beasts. So just take that in. His clothing is white. His hair is pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, burning fire. A stream of fire issued, came out before him. A thousand thousands, just meaning a Hebrew phrase, meaning an innumerable amount served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. This ancient of days, God the Father, is on his throne in utter control. So if you were freaked out by the beasts in verses 1 through 8, the scene immediately shifts to the utter exhaustive power of the ancient of days, God. And just take in that phrase, the ancient of days. We need to understand what that would have meant in the language of those listening to us. It doesn't just mean that God is really, really old. It's just the best way that they could describe the eternal nature or the eternality of God. So listen, we deal with some difficult concepts here. We, that's why one of the reasons why we just preach through the Bible so we don't skip stuff this hard. And there are some difficult and even controversial theological topics in the Bible which we get to on occasion. But nothing will blow your mind more than the timelessness of God. Just, you know, you think that there's parts of the Bible that are difficult to figure out. Just wrestle with this for a second. That God has no beginning and no end. We can't even conceive of a reality outside of time. But time is a creation of God, and he is not subject to his creation. So if you struggle with God and how, how much in control he is of human history, and how does human responsibility mix with all this kind of stuff, okay, that's fine. But that is crackerjacks theologically compared to the eternality of God. He has no beginning. I was impressed by that. Obviously, you have wrestled with it long ago and are fine with it. Okay, whatever. <laughs> God is, is forever. The ancient of days. And then, verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And we're going to get to who this horn is. Remember, there was this fourth beast. And then there were these ten um, horns that, that, that kind of came up. And then these three horns came. And one little horn kind of devoured these three horns. And so well, who's, this, who's this horn that is speaking here? I think, just to give you a clue, I think it's picturing, I think it has a literal fulfillment of a real person in history, and then I think it's pointing forward to another, I think, spiritual and literal fulfillment of the Antichrist who will come in the future. Who's this little horn that speaks? Okay, then, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. One sentence. This beast and the beasts were so terrifying, the Ancient of Days shows up, sits in his court in judgment, and with just half of a sentence, he is deposed. Its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I read a lot about that verse. What does it mean that this fourth beast was deposed, but these beasts one through three seem to sort of be allowed by God's providence to go for a while? All sorts of interpretation. I just want you to see that what's going on here, this grand impression 
Okay, this grand impression that the Holy Spirit wants the listeners in Daniel's day and our day to get is that the world is chaotic and terrifying. Man and his kingdoms are dreadful, but the Ancient of Days is in his throne, on his court, doing as he pleases. And even if, as verse 12 tells us, that there are some kingdoms which will prolong for a season, it is because of God has given them, he has put them on a leash to do whatever he deems they are allowed to do. Verse 13, then, He continues, and I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, who is this Son of Man who is presenting before God the Father, the Ancient of Days? We're going to read about that in just a second. Let me finish verse 14. And to him, meaning this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now hopefully you've developed good enough instincts of reading the Bible up to this point. Although we're going to read some New Testament passages to shed further light on who the Son of Man is, if you know, because of principle number four, that really the whole point of the Bible is the work of Christ, and you have the Ancient of Days, which is clearly God the Father, and this one like the Son of Man presenting before the Ancient of Days the accomplishment of some mission and then being given to this Son of Man kingdoms and peoples for an inheritance. Who do you think this Son of Man is without even having the light of the New Testament being shed on it? Jesus, right? Encourage your preacher now. I mean, okay, give me a north-south. Okay, Jesus, right? Now here's what's interesting about this title, the Son of Man, which is really peculiar. Because when we think we say, we say Jesus is the Son of God, right? But the Son of Man is actually in the New Testament, in the Gospels, specifically Matthew and Mark, it is the title that Jesus most often attributes to himself. And what Jesus is doing in the Gospels, because a, a first century Jew would have read Daniel 7, A Jew in Daniel's day, 500 years B.C., before Jesus came, would have read this verse 13 and read of this one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days and would clearly have attributed divinity to whoever that person was. Okay, So in the Jewish mindset, they have this figure, figure in the Old Testament called the Son of Man, who they don't quite know who he is yet, but he is a conquering one who receives an inheritance from the Father. So there's the Son of Man figure. And then in the New Testament, Jesus comes and he identifies himself with that title. In fact, let's let's read a couple of those verses. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this. In Matthew chapter 24 is an incredibly important chapter about the end of the age. And in Matthew 24, uh, verse 29, Jesus says this, referring to himself. He's linking himself to this picture in Daniel 7. He says immediately, Matthew 24, verse 29, speaking about the end of this age, immediately after the tribulation of those days, and I hope to get to the point of where I think the tribulation is, I don't think that the tribulation is necessarily just a specific short period of time. I think to some degree... Uh, God's people are enduring, have endured tribulation since the work of Christ and the ascension of Christ. And in fact, some Christians right now are going through great tribulation and have for the ages. But I think it will intensify in the end. And this is what Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's right out of Daniel chapter 7. 
And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So go back to Daniel chapter 7 where we have this picture where Jesus is this son of man on the clouds of heaven and he is receiving his inheritance. All of those, as it says in John chapter 6, that the father has given the son, he will bring home, right? And that's what we have here. Jesus says, I will gather all of the elect, all of my people that God has given me from eternity past, I will bring them home. I am a conquering king. And this wasn't just sort of, okay, well, great, Jesus is calling himself the son of man. This made Jesus' listeners furious. Flip over two chapters to Matthew chapter 26 and listen to what Jesus says as he's standing before Caiaphas in the council right before his crucifixion in verse 62 of Matthew chapter 26. And if you're lost a little bit, just come up for air and we'll get back to solid ground here in just a second. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? Speaking to Jesus, what is this that these men testify against you? They were accusing Jesus. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then listen to the way Jesus answers the question whether or not he is the Son of God, or this divine person that he claims to be. Jesus said to him, verse 64, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man, referring to himself, linking him back to this vision in Daniel 7, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And what type of reaction did this cause the Jewish leaders of the day? Oh, okay, well, Jesus is saying he's the guy in Daniel chapter 7 that we've been wondering who that is. Well, good. No, it causes them to want to kill him. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. So in other words, Jesus is claiming to be God. What further witness do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And so I want you to see here that what's going on in this heavenly court in contrast to the chaos of the four beasts is God on the throne and then the Son accomplishing the mission that the Father has sent him to accomplish. And what I think is happening in verse 13 is not the second coming of Christ. I think it is the ascension of Christ. Because notice the direction. Jesus is not coming down to get his people. He's going up. He is before the ancient of days saying, I have finished the work that you have sent me to do. I have conquered the beasts by allowing myself to be bore to, nailed to a cross to defeat death, defeat sin, absorb your wrath, satisfy it and extinguish it, and rise again in victory over every domain of darkness, sin, hell, and the grave. And now Jesus, after the ascension, is before the Ancient of Days, inheriting All that is his. Then we end with the interpretation. So be encouraged. Daniel, the one who's receiving the vision, has no idea what it means. (laughs) So if you're in that camp, you're in good company because Daniel's kind of like, huh? So let's read verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. Who's that? It's very likely an angel, probably Gabriel, as we'll read about later on in Daniel. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. So Daniel says, wait a minute, what's going on here? Notice the succinctness of the angel's description. These four beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. That's all he gets. Whoa, what's going on? Explain this to me. And Gabriel, the angel, and we know it's Gabriel because Gabriel's the messenger later on to Daniel, so we're just assuming that it's probably Gabriel. If it's not, it's really not that big of a point. But the angel, after Daniel's like, what's going on here? Give me some charts, some graphs, some timelines. And the angel's like, yeah, these four beasts get wasted and the saints of God inherit the kingdom. 
that's all you got for me? But shouldn't that orient us to something? That the point is not necessarily ultra-specific details, but to create in us a grand impression that these beasts are like child play at the feet of a sovereign God who has a son who has accomplished his mission. And then notice in verse 18, it doesn't talk about the Son of Man inheriting the kingdom, but it, inherit, it talks about the saints, the people of God inheriting. So we get what Jesus got. Think about that. We, so therefore, if we get what Jesus has won for us, why do I cling to the trinkets of this earth when the Son of God has won and purchased the inheritance for the saints forever and ever and ever, right? So that should inform the way. Let's, let's bring it down to ground level now. Click back in because I know you've been confused up to this point. That should inform the way I watch HGTV, So when I am mad that I don't live in Waco, Texas, so Chip and Joanna Gaines can't redo my house, and everybody else's house is nicer than mine, because I got four kids who are like a horde of locusts who grind cereal into my couch, and because my wife and my kids have a cat that sheds, that I'm waiting for the Time for that cat's days to come to an end. <laughs> and <laughs> Jennifer's not here. She's taking the kids to the camp. Please don't tell her about that. <laughs> and my heart gets lured into lusting after the things of this world. I need to remember what my inheritance is if I am a child of God because of what the Son of Man has done and accomplished for His people. If my gaze and my heart is so absorbed with the treasure to come, I can let go of the temporary treasure that is. Think about verse 18. We shall receive the kingdom. Verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. And Daniel's like, wait a minute, Gabe. You ain't getting off that easy, right? He's pressing him. Like, come on, man. Give me, give me a little bit more. Which was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying. He zeroed in on this fourth beast. With its teeth of iron and clays of bronze. Claws of bronze. And which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head. Tell me about those, Gabriel. What were those all about? And the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Okay, so picture this. You have these four beasts. Now we've zeroed in on one, and we've not only zeroed in on one beast, but we've zeroed in on this one particular horn that sprouts up from this beast that seems to wreak havoc on the other horns and also puts, its, puts the people of God in its scopes and starts to wear out the people of God. In fact, he'll use that very description. It starts to make war against the people of God. But notice, all of this, it's not like God is in a tug of war. He's, this little horn seems to be allowed to do this, verse 22, until God decides... His time is up. Verse 23. Thus he said, this is the interpretation now of the angel to Daniel. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. Remember that the literal fulfillment of that is Rome, very likely. But it will have a sort of spiritual figurative fulfillment through the ages. There will be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. 
As for the ten horns, out of his, this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. Verse 25, he zeroing in on this little horn, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now that little phrase there, time, times, and half a time, literally means likely three and a half years. And what's interesting about this is that there was a ruler in the Greek dynasty named Antiochus IV who did this very thing. He spoke against God's people. He weared out God's people for three and a half years. And so a sort of literal present day or just a few centuries in the future, this prophecy is literally fulfilled with a real human being, this Antiochus IV. But then through the ages, this has been, we've seen people raise up against God. And what I think is happening is that Daniel in this vision is getting a picture of a literal ruler that is going to come in the next few centuries before Christ and wear out God's people. And he becomes a kind of type, a kind of picture that will be fulfilled throughout the ages and then ultimately is pointing towards the great enemy of God's people, the Antichrist, that we'll read about in just a second. And in verse 26, but the court, again, the attention back to the exhaustive control of God, the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. In other words, God's triumph is sure. And if you're still a little confused and troubled, again, be encouraged by verse 28. You're in good company. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed but I kept the matter in my heart. So, just to summarize the interpretation before we draw this all together and conclude and come to the Lord's table together, is that this fourth beast seems to be the focus, very likely literally fulfilled in the Roman Empire, and then very likely perpetuated figuratively through the centuries. Some people have surmised that these ten horns are the ten countries of the European Union, uh, I don't know, maybe there's partial aspects to that that are true. Some people have looked at this Antiochus IV in uh, about 150 BC as a literal fulfillment of this little horn. I think that's true. But we see leaders throughout the ages that have oppressed God's people. I think that this little horn, and the vast majority of commentators would agree with this, that this little horn that is raised up out of this kingdom is a picture of the Antichrist. And let's get a picture of what Paul says, what light the New Testament sheds on this little horn or this, this Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let me just read to you a little bit about this and I think and hope you will be encouraged and not psyched out because if you were somebody like me who grew up in the 70s, you probably watched those Damien movies, remember the omen, right? And you were psyched out and then you didn't sleep for a month and then Maybe you, like me, had a big brother that said, let's shave your head and see if you got 666 underneath all your hair. Man, my brother, I know I've told you that the Lord used him to witness to me and draw me to Christ, but he made it painful in every, just about every other aspect of life. Thank the Lord for bringing me to Christ through my brother, but he, he wore me out. Listen to what Paul says about this. He calls him the man of lawlessness. And I think this is, this is, a picture of this little horn that we see that had a literal fulfillment with this Antiochus and has, will have a, another literal fulfillment in this man of lawlessness that is coming at the end of the age. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. In other words, don't be psyched out by goofy movies in Hollywood. Or left behind books, right? If you have those books, be entertained by them, but don't be theologically informed by them. It is fiction. Fiction. 
Okay, I don't have time for that. All right. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Again, virtually all biblical commentators link this man of lawlessness as being a literal end times fulfillment of this little horn which through the ages has been sort of figuratively fulfilled by various leaders that have raised up against God's people who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. I don't take that to mean a literal temple. I take that to mean the figurative body of Christ proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. In other words, he's on a leash. That's what Jude says at the end of the Bible, that God has Satan on a leash. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then listen to this, verse 8. If you're psyched out, be encouraged. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Whether he is a figurative manifestation of the Antichrist or whether it is a literal person. I think it's both. So let me just stop here for a second. Um, I think Antiochus IV, who wore out God's people in 130 BC or so, was a type of Antichrist. I think Roman dictators Nero in the first century was a type of Antichrist. I think horrible despots in the history of mankind have been types of antichrist hitler is a type of antichrist idi amin stalin mussolini i think that systems and mindsets and cultures can be a kind of antichrist in fact the bible uses that phrase to describe those who do not believe in the son of god i think that there is the spirit of christ and the spirit of antichrist in this age. There are only two types of people in this world. But I think that there is a literal, actual person that will come and will be this man of lawlessness. But then listen, so don't be psyched out. Listen to verse 8 and how the Son of Man handles this dreadful little horn. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So Jesus coughs on him and he's gone. (laughs) Jesus blows on the Antichrist, whether he is a system or a literal person, that's not the focus. Jesus blows on him like a dandelion. Let's just shadow box together, right? Let's cue up Eye of the Tiger and run up the steps in Philadelphia because we beat Apollo Creed, right? That's the destiny for God's people because Jesus is our big brother who defeats our foe for us. And I think that's the point that God wants Daniel and his listeners to see. And I think that's the point that he wants us to see. Man, there's some chaotic stuff going on in this world that if I tried to figure out and piece together how God's sovereignty spills out and how everything relates together and how this and that, man, it is chaotic. It's like a great sea that I don't understand. And it is a vision that overwhelms me. But all of a sudden, The Holy Spirit wants to take our attention to the heavenly court where God is on his throne and the Son accomplishes his purpose. And then he's going to give us a little bit more just to keep us going. But we need to remember, man, that even though this enemy will wear out the people of God, he's on a leash. And Jesus blows on him like a dandelion and he is vanquished. 
So I just have three thoughts and we're done. I don't have them on the screen. I just want you to take them in. One, three concluding thoughts. God's triumph is certain. And God's triumph is not necessarily a long life in America where we have a picket fence, 2.4 kids, and a cat. (laughs) Maybe the triumph of God works its way out in somebody's life by them dying young of cancer, but they die in a way that testifies to the supremacy of eternity with Christ over and against health in these 80 or 90 years. Maybe God's triumph is manifested through Egyptian Christians having their heads lopped off on a beach by demonic forces of ISIS to testify that there's more to this life than a long life here on this earth, that living for Christ is better than renouncing him in this life. God's triumph is certain, and do we not need to be reminded of that in this fretful time? Secondly, he has purposes for ordaining all things to unfold in the way that they do. And those purposes are almost always never known to us in the moment. So, so notice the, 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 the behind the scenes. It's not even behind the scenes. It's clear out front. Just the, the providence of God. Stuff is happening. This little horn is wearing out the saints of God in this vision until the Ancient of Days says, Enough. Well, if he can say enough on that day, why couldn't he say enough a week before? Well, he can. But he often doesn't for his divine purposes. Satan, the Antichrist, every beast, every force of wickedness is nothing, is on a leash. His days are numbered according to the wise counsel of God. And we must trust God to know that his purposes are unfolding in human history in a way that will bring about the maximum display of his glory and the maximum satisfaction and joy of the saints, not necessarily in this life, but forever and evermore. Living any other way reduces the redemptive plan of God merely to something that we get here and now for these decades and it ultimately never works. But seeing it that way makes us realize that whatever happens, whatever happens, God is unfolding human history and the lives of his people for their good and his glory. And that's the only way to live. And then finally, I mean, how do you live like this without one another? Right? Like, how do, we, how, do you, how do you read a chapter like this? How do you live in a world like this as an individual? That's why God has given us each other. That's why he's given us this reminder of communion that we do monthly. Because what we do when we come around this table is we remember. We remember what the ultimate victory that has been won by Jesus on the cross. We remind ourselves of the inheritance that the Son of Man has won for the Father and has given to us. This bread that represents Jesus' body that was broken represents the sin, the punishment that should have been ours was poured out on Jesus, right? All of our rebellion, all of our sin, every thought, everything that we have done to disobey God has been atoned for by Jesus on the cross. His body has been broken because he was a perfect human and he was eternal God. His sacrifice is enough to satisfy it. And then this cup that we drink reminds us of Jesus' blood that was spilled, not just to make us not guilty, but to give us his righteousness so that we now live in grace. We are now washed whiter than snow. We are his. He is ours. We will live with him forever. And when we come to this table, we remind ourselves as we live in the middle of a chaotic sea with beasts swarming around us, we remind ourselves of the ultimate triumph of the Son of God on the cross and in his resurrection. And we look around to one another And we call it communion because we have this in common. 
And God has given us one another to link arms in this chaotic world so that we might spur one another on to live in these chaotic days. Not gossip, fuss, and argue with each other about petty, stupid preferences. That's what we are doing when we come to this table. To stake ourselves to the sure and certain victory of Jesus. To put down our temporal silliness and selfishness. And to lift our eyes to the Son of Man, to His victory. To link arms with one another and say, come on, let's go, let's go. This little horn may wear us out, but His victory is sure. So let's do this. Let's do this together for the glory of God until he comes when Jesus decides to part that sky and blow on our adversary like a dandelion. Let's do this. Let's come to the table and do it and remember the work of Christ on our behalf. So who's welcome to this table? Those that are trusting in Jesus. Are you trusting in Christ? That's what it means to come to this table. This isn't just a little rabbit's foot that we do to sort of like, oh gosh, I need to get some of that to help me get through the week. When you come to this table, you are saying that you are a part of the body of Christ. You are part of this kingdom. You're saying, he is my king. Jesus, I'm trusting in what he has done for me. He's mine. I am his. I'm a sinner. And the only way that I can stand before the ancient of days. Did you see the court? The court was in session. The books were opened and judgment came. And the only way that I will not be among those judged and burned up at his fiery wrath is if I am in him. If I am trusting in Jesus. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the meaning of the book. That's the point of the Bible. Is that Jesus came to bear the judgment of God for us through his work on the cross. On the cross, he laid down his life. God the Father punished him, poured out his wrath on Jesus that should have been ours because Jesus is not just a good man, he's a perfect man, and because he's not just a perfect man, he is a holy God, he is able to absorb the wrath of God that should be ours. And then Jesus extinguishes, he takes it away, and he rises again in victory, conquering death, the grave, and every beast, and every little horn. And now rises in victory over it, and now what it means to come to this table is to say that my only hope for that day when God sits in judgment and the books of my life are opened is not that I have relative goodness compared to the next guy, but my only hope is that I am trusting in Christ who bore God's judgment for me, extinguished it, removed it, took it away, rose again in victory, gave me a new heart so that I could believe in him and I am trusting in him. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what you must do right now. If you have not done that, do it even now. Look away from yourself. Don't trust in yourself and say, Jesus, save me. I will be judged if I do not trust in you. And your sacrifice, your work alone is sufficient. And when we trust in him, it gives evidence that he's given us a new heart and we are his people and we're welcome to come to this table. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's what we're doing as we come to this table. Let's do it now. If you're not trusting in Jesus, don't come to this table. Not because we're trying to single you out and embarrass you, but because I would hate to make you a hypocrite. I would hate to make you confess something that you don't believe, especially when it's the most important thing in the universe. If you need more explanation about what it means to be part of his kingdom, to trust in his work, don't leave this room until you talk to somebody that you know to be a Christian. I'll be late for a wedding today to tell you more about Jesus at the end of the service. Well, maybe I'd pass you off to another pastor, but, but do not leave this room without settling that. Let's come to the table together. Ushers, if you'd prepare to serve us. Father, as we, as we prepare to come to the table, I pray that we would take in this incredible scene in Daniel 7. This world is a chaotic place where kingdoms come and kingdoms go. 
where antichrists and men of lawlessness set themselves up against you and wear out your people. But all of this is clearly under your control. You've ordained it to be so for purposes that are often mysterious to us, but someday we will see. Until that time, Lord, put steel in our spine. Let us remember that your victory is certain. And humble us so that we would not criticize one another and be harsh with one another, but that we would encourage one another. And all the more as we see that great day approaching when Jesus shall cough on the Antichrist and he shall disappear. Oh, as we sang about earlier this morning, what a glorious day that will be. And as we come to this table, may we remember the work of your Son on our behalf that makes all of this sure and certain. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.